First of all, I appreciate you, Coach, coming on the show. You know, just big. You are our second coach we've had on. Yep. Yeah, Ty Lue was on. Ty Lue, yeah. Yeah, but Ty I mean, now Ty. I feel like I'm in the NBA. If you're on yeah. the Knuckleheads podcast, now you made it. Until then, <laughs> you're just you're on the outside. So. Yeah, we appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, this is a two-part question. When you first got to college, who was the first person to bust your ass? And strategy-wise, when you first start head coaching in the NBA, who was the coach that bust your ass, the first coach? Well, I've certainly had my ass busted many times. <laughs> you know, I was a Division three player, yeah. all right? So when I, when I was playing in college, I remember we had a – I was only a freshman, and we had a flu outbreak on campus – and we go down and play a Division II team, Hartwick College, and they had this Division II All-American, Dana Garris. You know, and I said, man, shit, I want to guard him. Like, you know, <laughs> all this. And, like, dude had, like, 42 <laughs> in, like, 28 minutes. And, I mean, I was killing myself, like, trying to stop him. It just absolutely crushed me. I said, man, I better start working on this coaching stuff. And he's the point guard? He could have been whatever he wanted against me. He was posting me up, beating me off the dribble. But we only have five guys, so it's not like you're going to sub. I mean, we had one of those five-man games. Like, oh, I don't know yeah, if you ever did that when guys were sick. You're going 40 minutes and just getting worn out. No hmm. break. So, But as far as, like, coming into the league, like, I, I think one of the things that helps you as a coach is – when guys will have like strategy stuff where mm. you don't have an answer and now you got to go back to the think? drawing yeah. board and go to it. And I don't really remember as much the first year, but the second year as a head coach when we had Shaq and Udonis was our starting power forward. And at that time, UD hadn't become like a real good mid-range shooter yet. Yeah. So people used to try to front and front back. Shot. Shaq. Yeah, yeah. So you couldn't get him the ball, and the ball would come to Udonis at the top. And yeah, you encourage him to take the shot, but your whole offense just became Udonis taking mid-range jumpers, oh, right? Man. So you had to find out other answers, and we would see that all the time and had to get into movement and stuff where we could get Shaq on the on the backside and things like that. But you get it. I mean, literally every year, all the time, like somebody runs into something where you're like, I got my ass kicked tonight. <laughs> I mean, as a coach, and you got to rethink what you're doing. Yo, 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 we live on location. We live in Orlando, Florida, city beautiful. We had to do this one. We got one of my favorite coaches all time, my main man, Mr. Stan Van Gundy. Appreciate you, Coach. Yeah, yeah. As being a coach, like I know I be telling um, my friends and other people, like when I watch basketball, I might not watch it the way you watch it. Like, as soon as I instantly see the screen, I instantly start thinking about what that team doing, what they doing on offense, what they doing on defense, what they taking away, the strategies of everything. So when you watch basketball now, you can't watch it like a regular fan or person. So every time now that you watch basketball, you instantly start strategizing and instantly goes in your head of what the team is trying to do overall. 
Yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, like I'm a big baseball fan. Yeah. And I, the thing I think I like is I don't know that much. So I just watch it as a fan. But yeah. basketball, I always start thinking about like, what could you do against that? Yeah. What are your options offensively or defensively? Yeah. X and O, they should do this and they should do that or they should at least have the option of doing that. Yeah, yeah I don't think you ever lose that. I think it's the way it's the way you come up. And so I grew up, my dad coached for 42 years. So you just sort of grow up with that's your mentality. That's the way you approach the game yeah. from an X and O standpoint more than from a player standpoint I think what I had to really learn when I came into the league is I had to learn how to teach players you know what I'm talking about yeah. and like the guy who helped me a lot he came to us in a trade my first year as an assistant in Miami we got Hardaway in a trade at the trade deadline and Tim really helped me understand pick and roll basketball from a point guard's mentality, mentality. Yeah. you know like this is what he's looking for and this is how you teach yeah. other guards to make plays like mm. the x and o part i mean i had a lot to learn when i came in the league but that was relatively easy for me to learn yeah. but to say okay how do i take a guard and teach him what his looks are i had to learn that from players and i don't think people think about that a lot from coaches they always think Players are learning from coaches, mm. but when you get to this level, coaches are learning at least as much, if not more, yeah. from players, especially veteran guys, because you guys know you can't get by in this league just on your talent. Like people, uh -huh. I think the most underrated thing about professional athletes, at least in our league, is how smart guys are. Because yeah. if you're going to have a long career in this league, like you got to learn what's going on mm. and... I didn't have a player's perspective. So I had to rely on what assistant coaches on my staff who were had been players, but from the players themselves. And Tim was the first one. Like he taught me a lot about pick and roll basketball, which is obviously a big part of of the NBA. And not just the two guys on the pick and roll, but where he wanted other guys spaced. And all of that, like... Yeah, because certain angles he can't see. That's if exactly you're thinking he right. can see, like, when he come off the screen and this big seven-footer right there, like, I can't see from that angle. No, that's right. <laughs> I mean, and, and, and that's why I think you got to learn what's going on. So those guys are smart, and you're crazy as a coach if you're not talking to players and, like, what do you see? What do we need to do to help you? Yeah. Things like that. I mean, yeah, that was all the time for me. I love coaches that make adjustments, like uh, a coach that'll make an adjustment in the middle of the game, or this adjustment might just come in the fourth quarter and he didn't do How hard is it for a coach to have a strategy, to stick to that strategy the whole game, and to throw that whole strategy out and change the whole strategy? See, I think it's hard if you're not prepared to do that ahead of time. So, like, we'd be in staff meetings preparing for games, right? Yeah. So we'd decide, like, I don't care if it was offense or defense, this is the stuff we want to do. Yeah. And right there, in the, like, we'd be planning, all right, what's plan B? What's plan C? And if you're playing against the best players, you got probably plan D, E, F, G, H, yeah. I, J, K, because nothing will work. But to me, I don't think I'm smart enough to just 
come up with something new on the fly. Like yeah. I, we were planning to adjust, if that makes sense. If like, this happened, we yeah, if, if, they, if this isn't working, this is our next step. If yeah. this ain't working, this is our next step. So you were ready to make those adjustments. I'll tell you, we had a game last night, Lakers against Golden State. And, you know, Golden State usually wants to run their offense through Draymond up top, right? And yeah. He's handling the ball. Well, the Lakers, literally Anthony Davis played him down at the dotted circle standing in a lane, and then they played on top of all their shooters. Well, mm. normally they'll back – there's nowhere to go. Yeah. AD's standing down there. Yeah. And they got crushed for like a quarter and a half, and then Steve Kerr – sorry, that ain't working. We're either going to run straight pick and roll, so AD's going to have to come up a little bit, or we're going to throw it to Draymond in the post – and now run all their post splits and stuff. Mm -hmm. Like those are adjustments that Steve was smart enough to make, but as part of their system, like you yeah. have to have stuff to part adjust to. Yeah. You can't just be making up shit on the fly. Like, yeah. you know. I've seen this play out in practices and walkthroughs. Like what he said, C, D, E, all of this. Like when I first got to the team, this is when I used to, when I was doing my figuring coach out process, I was like, I used to just think he was crazy and didn't ever want to go home. We would be going through the team's offense, and you can attest to this, we'll go through the wrinkles, and then, like he said, if he sees something, he'll be like, now, the scout is done. Charles, Bob, whoever, they done with they part of the scout, bro. They, they went through the three wrinkles. Coach like, nah. What about this? What about this? We the players, we sitting here like, oh my God, bro. Like, he, like this ain't even part of nothing. This is so he like, well, if I'm seeing that they could do this, I mean, they could possibly do this. This could be the last play of the game. <laughs> That's why I used to be sitting there and, and like, that was when Jameer Nelson became my best friend on the team. Because Jameer used to be like, bro, are you going to drive yourself crazy? Just let it go. <laughs> he was like, this is going to be every day. Like, if you, you like, you making me upset because you complaining about it. And I know it's not going to stop. He like, I need you to get where I'm at just so you can know. Like, and I was sitting there, that was when I first started to understand, like, yo, like, his basketball, like, that's why when you ask him how did he watch the game, that's why I started laughing. I can't even imagine yeah. how he's sitting here watching the game. I, I get that, and I'll be like, I'm looking at the game totally different than everybody in the room that's looking at the game. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I think what you need, like, I, I think, you know, you're never doing it on your own as a head coach. And, you know, you're talking to your players, and then you got your staff, and you hope you're going to have guys with different perspectives. Yeah. You got a Tim Hardaway on your staff. Well, he's looking at the game through a point guard's eyes. You know, you got a Patrick Ewing on your staff. He's looking at the game through a big man's eyes. And I think the more diversity of that you can get so that everybody's looking at it a little differently and then you can bring it together yeah. is what you're going for. But to Q's point, I think one of the things you have to try, not only what your own adjustments are going to be, you have to try to anticipate – what the other team's adjustments yeah. are going to be. When we take this away, what are they going to do, and are yeah. we ready for it? One of the fears I always had, one of the things that kept me up at night is I was going to get something thrown at us yeah. that we weren't prepared for, and I was going to let my team down. And it happened. It happened, but you you try to fight hard that whatever happens in the game, we're we're prepared for it. When did you – fall in love with basketball? Was it Pops that loved the game and he was so into the game that it made you fall in love, you and your brother fall in love with it? What was the moment when you was younger that you came up and you fell in love with basketball? I don't know if I could come up with a moment, D, because 
it really was, I mean, I, I've never not been around the game. And, and it wasn't just that my dad coached. All of my dad's friends were coaches, like <laughs> maybe even in other sports. So it was just always like that's who I was around was coaches and stuff. But my dad, even today, he's 87 he will say, like, his perspective is he never worked a day in his life. And this is not a guy who ever made big money, mm -hmm. you know. I mean, he coached at high school, junior college, small college level, but just loved being in the gym every day, loved being around players every day. And when you grow up around that, when a guy's like, you got your father excited to go to work every day, mm -hmm. you know, you start looking at it as a kid going, yeah, that's that that's fun. what I want to do, you know? And then when I was 13 years old, my dad was an assistant coach at St. Mary's College in California. And he had major brain surgery. So he was laid up for a couple of months. And at that time, you know, this was before, that's how old I am, but at that time, Freshmen couldn't play mm -hmm. in college. They had to have separate freshman teams. Yeah. So my dad was an assistant with the varsity doing all the recruiting, but then he would coach freshman team and they would play a lot of junior colleges. Well, you don't have a staff when you're coaching the freshman team. That's mm -hmm. just part of what you do. Yeah. So my brother and I, my brother was like 10 or 11. I was 13. We were going out like scouting games, like mm -hmm. of teams they were going to play against and stuff. And I'm sure the reports at that age were terrible, but the fact that we had the opportunity to do it yeah. and see what it was like, I think that's the time where your thinking sort of changed. That and the fact that I always thought, you know, I was going to be a player, either a baseball or basketball player. By the time I got to high school and saw what was out there, it was like, now this ain't going very far. Like when you hit under 100 in baseball and then this before Nike camp and stuff like yeah. that, the first one I remember, I grew up on the West Coast, they called it the Superstars Camp. And so it was like, I think the top 100, 150 guys from the Western United States went, right? So I'm there. Shouldn't have been, but I was there, right? And I remember they used to sit us in the stands, and then the coaches would pick teams. So guys are coming down out of the stands. And so you're going, oh, shit, there ain't many of us left up here. Now. <laughs> right? It got down to me and one other guy. Somebody took me. I was not the last guy left. I was so freaking happy. I was like, oh, my God. I was 149th out of 150 in the draft. I said, all right, there is not going to be a playing career here. So if you want to stay involved in the game, what are you going to do? And I knew from the time I was probably a junior in high school because I was going into my junior year, I knew, like, okay, it's going to be, it's going to be coaching. That's what I want to do. When I played basketball, I just paid attention a lot, and I just listened to exactly how they said. If you tell me exactly like this, this is exactly how it's supposed to go. But you see on all levels that even when teams, when they press or they play a zone, some of these kids and some of these guys don't even know the meaning of why we doing it this way. Like how uh, San Antonio used to front the postman because they bring in the bottom man. Bottom guy over, yeah. But some of these guys don't even know the meaning of why we're doing it this way to set them up this way. And I'll be trying to preach and, and just tell other guys, like, man, you got to know the meaning of the game. Why are you pressing like this? Why, are, when he throw it to this ball, you just don't run and trap and get yourself out of position? How important is the strategy of basketball? Not just running, jumping, and getting your shots up, but knowing 
the strategy of not only your team, but the other team that you're playing against. Yeah, you know, those are great. I mean, you bring up so many good points there. First of all, with the why are we doing things, I remember <laughs> I was lucky when I came to Orlando and then when I went to Detroit, I had Brendan Malone on my staff, you mm -hmm. know. He'd been Not a head coach, coach in the league. Yeah, you know, Michael's dad. And he would walk by me at least once every practice. He would say to me, coach the why. Not just we're doing yeah. this, but why, well, just why what you brought doing? up. Why are we doing Like he thinks it doesn't make any sense to players if they don't know why you're doing it. Yeah. Like this is what we're trying to accomplish. So he would say that to me constantly, coach the why. But going to your thing, D, I think like you hear so much about player development now in the NBA, right? But I think most people think of player development as just you're in the weight room getting stronger, better conditioned, whatever, or you're out there working on your skills. And the part they leave out, or two parts they leave out, one like Q did for us in Detroit is, and Spencer Dinwiddie brought this up on your guys' podcast, is you got to learn how to be a professional. That's part of player development. Like, yeah. just what do you do to be a pro in the league? And then the second part is, I think they've got to learn the game. Like, you have to teach them in film sessions and practice and all of that. You have to teach them the game. You know, like, this is what's going on. This is what this team is trying to do to us. This is why they're yeah. trying to do it. This is how we're going to counter it. Yeah. You know, things like that. And I think if you don't do that, you're leaving out a huge part of player development. And I don't think it's all on the players. Like, I say this even about, like, parenting and stuff, right? Everybody will say, oh, kids are different. No, no, the world around them is different. And it's the same in the NBA. I don't think players have changed. I think the world around them, some of it we can't do anything about, social media, all that, that's changed. But us as coaches or people, we've changed in yeah. what we do. I think players want the same things, man. They want to be as good as they can possibly be. They want their teams to win. And you got to help them do that stuff. That's our responsibility. And just to say, oh, well, we can't do this because, you know, players are different. They don't want to work. And I don't – I think that's BS myself. I really do. I say you see football players that have this big old playbook. You know, it's, it's a lot of players out there. So if one player is not doing exactly what that whole play – with these other 11 players out there, it messes up a whole play, it messes up a whole strategy. My thing was always to be telling these kids that it ain't all about basketball. It ain't all about going to the gym. You, you need to know your strategy. Like Dame Litter is a point guard because he knows how to manipulate the game. He know how to use the plays to work for him and his teammates. It ain't all about, oh, he was just shooting the jumpers and he shot so many jumpers that he can just shoot jumpers good. He still has to play the strategy of the game. Yeah, and I think, you know, you see it all the time. The best players, they've seen it all. Yeah. They yeah. know all the strategy. <laughs> yeah. Like there's, you know, whatever you throw at Damian Lillard, whatever you throw at Luka Doncic, who's been He's playing as before. a pro for half of his life, <laughs> yeah. you know, They've seen it all. And it was interesting, Jay Kidd this year, we were talking to him, you know, about attacking the blitz and everything on Luca. He said, look, Luca has seen it all. He knows what to do. He said, what I got to coach is the other guys. Yeah. Like, where are we spacing and what we are the plays we're looking for? Because I don't worry about Luca. Yeah. He said, he's going to make the right play. Right. It's can we get the other guys 
you know, a lot of those guys might not be guys who ever get blitzed. So they have to understand what's going on from Luca's perspective yeah. to get to the spots that are going to help him out and allow them to attack four on three yeah. behind the defense. And you're right. If you don't teach that stuff, well, to me, and this is one of the reasons I think even my assistant coaches would say, like, we had really long walkthroughs my entire career, really long walkthroughs. <laughs> Guys would bitch and the whole thing. And my assistant coaches would say to me, they can't retain this much. Like, we need to be going over less. And my answer would always be, and I understood their point of view. I did. But my point of view was always, well, they can't. I know what they can't retain. They definitely can't retain anything we don't go over. Like, that for sure, they can't maintain. And I also think, like I said before, I think we <laughs> underestimate I think everybody does. We underestimate the intelligence of pro athletes. Like, there's a reason. Like, if I go out and watch an AAU tournament, right, I'm going to see hundreds of guys that are great athletes where you're going like, oh, my God, you know, the athletic ability and the skills. So how do we weed out people till we get to the guys who are NBA players? And mm -hmm. I think a lot of it is part of it's attitude work ethic. Mm -hmm. But the other part is – intelligence man and so we got these super smart athletes and we don't think they can retain information no. my experience tells me that's bs so guys would i understand man if you're a player like you don't want to be out there an hour and 15 <laughs> minutes on a no. walkthrough i get that but to say they can't retain the information it's is wrong. bs yeah. like the argument that would resonate more with me is if people said we don't want them on their feet that long. Okay, that I understand. Yeah. But don't tell me they can't retain it. I don't think, I honestly don't think you can throw too much at NBA players. Yeah. Like, maybe some of them. Like, I didn't coach you, but I coached There was never, I don't care how much. Like, he might not have wanted to be out there an hour and 15 minutes. Yeah. But whatever I threw at him, we'd go into the game and they'd know exactly well, what exactly we were supposed to do on yeah. every play. They would know. So tell me they shouldn't be on their feet. But don't tell me they can't retain it. I'm just, I'm different than a lot of guys. I don't buy that. I think they can retain whatever it is you give them. I think the best example of that is like, we just had Turk on. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Turk was the best. Like, this was the part that I brought up. Like, coach, please explain to the world. If we had a one o'clock game, oh, please tell the world what we were like. <laughs> Turk was not showing up. To maybe the fourth quarter. Oh. <laughs> we would always have them in Toronto, too. For some reason, we always got the Sunday. At, remember Toronto Sunday, would always yeah. play Sunday oh, afternoon Sunday at one? Afternoon. And we would always have those. I'm telling you, by the last time. So Turk went to Toronto, and then he came back, right? By the time he came back, like Cliff and Patrick were like, we shouldn't even bring him up here for this game. <laughs> like at one o'clock. Because I would, like, I was never one of those guys. Like every game... I ever coached, Q can vouch for this. I don't care. Back to back, what we were going to do a walkthrough. It might be in the hotel, whatever. So we had those one o'clock games. We'd get them up at like eight o'clock, have breakfast. We'd be walking. We'd be walking through in a ballroom, and Turk would be like muttering under his breath. <laughs> and, oh, it's too early. It's all of this. Oh my God, all the time. And he was. He was. Like, Turk wasn't going to get going until about three, so that might be the start of the fourth quarter. You might have a chance, but oh, my God. Yo, Turk was the funniest because he would complain. He was the grumpy employee. He would complain the entire time. 
nonstop. Oh, like when he started doing more plays, talking to me, you just always just found most of the time we would be together because we both wings. So I'd be sitting there like, this man is going nuts. Then he's always cold. That was the other thing. Yes. Walking right here. Yes. It's cold, bro. Cold, bro. Like, oh. That's that Florida. Oh. <laughs> but he was also like in practice, what you'd have to do with him. Like, I remember trying to talk to him my first year because, you know, like whatever you're doing in practice, like something's going to be a warm up drill you're doing at first. So we would do a lot of like just five on O fast break, like up and back running your break. And he would just be going half-ass. Like, he just would not get going. So I tried to talk to him. I tried to yell at him. Nothing's working. And so I forget which assistant coach said, just make him keep going again until he does it. So that's what we started doing. And he'd be running with Jameer and Dwight because, you know, Richard, it would be the starters, right? So we'd be running a break, and it would just be like they're supposed to be going up and back, go again, go again, like six straight times. And they're all looking. I'm like, look, we're going to go till Kirk goes at then full speed. At and then everybody's screaming at him. <laughs> he'd be like, this bullshit. Like, uh, <laughs> like under his breath and the whole thing. I said, well, Turk, you know what you could do? You could go full speed the first time, and then we would be done, and it wouldn't be bullshit. But the dude could play, though. <laughs> he could play. Tell me this. He was a gamer. Growing up, the one-on-ones between you and your brother. <laughs> who was getting the ass bug? Who, oh, who listen, got the better record? I won record? all those. I'm two and a half years older. So, you know, oh. that makes a difference when yeah. you're young. But by the time I got to college, so I was a freshman in college. He was a sophomore in high school. By then it turned. <laughs> but I could still win one-on-one, but he was a lot better player. But one-on-one because... Like, I wanted to score. We had though. different <laughs> yeah, mentalities. <laughs> like, when I played, I wanted to score. And I, you know, especially when I was young, I probably even took a lot of bad shots. Like, I was getting them up. Like, I wanted to score. Where he was a true, like, point guard pass first guy. So, one-on-one, I'm going to win. Right. Yeah. You know, now he is a better player. But one-on-one, I was going to win. But we did a lot of that. <laughs> you know, it's funny you would bring up one-on-one, though, because I remember, like, Bob McAdoo, when I worked with him in – Miami, Bob would always say, he goes, Stan, man, I think after every practice I ever had in the NBA, I played one-on-one against somebody, Mm. right? And when we were in Orlando and we had Earl Clark and Von Wafer, I don't care. You could practice for three hours. Those dudes were going to go for an hour after practice one-on-one, and some guys would jump in, right? But they want – that's the last time I've seen guys play one-on-one on on their own. That's the last – Time. What like, you think about them trying to add a one-on-one tournament in the All-Star game? Weekend? I think it would be better than that All-Star game we saw. <laughs> like, at least then, if you're not going to try one-on-one, well, you're yeah. just going to get your ass busted then and go home. Like, we got to do something about that All-Star I, game. Listen, I feel like if guys, you know, we got enough guys. We got guys in the league that could take it serious. I think if they get in there and they, you know how it is in the locker room, man, before the game or whenever, they got to really – get the right guys to buy in and start talking like, yo, we going to hoop tonight. And I think if it's, you get three, four of the right guys on each team and they start getting it going, like, man, they going to play. But it's I don't think it's been that atmosphere for whatever reason. Guys just, you know, whether it's guys coming in chilling and they tired, trying to take a break or whatever. But, like, you, like when Kobe was around, when he be on that. Like, well, you, you remember when he first matched up with MJ? Yeah, in the yeah, yeah. He was, like, up there gardening and, like, yeah. like he wanted that challenge. I remember 2005 was the first one I coached. I coached the All-Star game 2005 in Denver. And at halftime, 
AI is like yelling at guys because that's when the West started to really take over the East. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And AI's coming in at halftime. He goes, man, y'all aren't like tired of this bullshit about how the West is better than us and we all a bunch of shit. He goes, I'm tired of the West. We got to go out. I mean, he's like giving the halftime talk. I'm mm -hmm. like, damn. And what I remember about the game. So like the coaches, the assistant coaches make more on the winning team than on the losing team. So I got Spo and Ron Rothstein mm -hmm. and, okay, and McAdoo, right? And then you could only have three guys on the bench. So I'd already told Keith Askins, like, because they wouldn't pay for a fourth guy, I'll give you my money, right? So, you know, you got your whole rotation out for the – that's all you do in the All-Star game. You want to make sure everybody gets their minutes. Yeah. So every time in the second half I tried to take AI out, the assistants were like, no, no, oh, no. <laughs> because they knew he wanted to win. And sure enough, we won the All-Star game. They got more money, and AI got the MVP. Once the assistants heard that talk, yeah. like, no, no, we ain't taking AI out. <laughs> no, he must have played 20 minutes out of the 24 in the second half of that game. Tell me about when you got to Castleton State as the first head coaching job. How was that? So I was really young. I'd only coached for two years. I was an assistant at the University of Vermont. And then it's 1983, and I ended up with two job opportunities at the same time. I could have gone as an assistant at Dartmouth with Reggie Minton, who I'd known because he tried to recruit me to the Air Force Academy when I was coming out of high school. Great man, really good person. And that job was paying like 37000 okay, at that time. Or I could go as the head coach to Castleton State, which was a Division III NAIA program, for 7500 bucks a year, right? <laughs> so like a five times difference. And I remember calling my dad, and he, I said, what do you think? He said, look, he said, if you want to coach, take the responsibility over the money. Like you're 24 you don't need the money. He said, and once you have more money, you'll never go backwards. Mm -hmm. So then you'd never take a job like that again. He said, the bottom line is $7,500 is good for you because if they were paying more, you couldn't get it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he said, they're stuck with you at 7,500 and two yeah. years of experience. And so that's what I did in the opportunity to be a head coach and inherit a really good team at that level. Like, was great and with great people who virtually every single one of them, I mean, that's 40 years ago now and I'm in touch with virtually every single one of those guys mm. now. And again, mm. learned a lot from them just in terms of how to coach. You know, I came in like with all the answers, man. You know how it is. Like I'm sure you guys as players when you were 24 had all the answers, right? Mm. And I remember my dad saying to me, son, if you got all the answers, it's only because you don't know all the questions. Yeah. And I have kept that in my mind. I think it's so true of everybody in any job. Once you think you got all the answers, yeah, you just don't know all the questions, you yeah. know? And it was, but it was a great experience to be able to coach your own team. I mean, I was two years older than, right. than a lot of the yeah. players, and it was my first time and the whole thing. It was, it's still the most fun I've ever had. You know, and I've had fun with a lot of NBA teams, too, but that was the most fun I've ever had, you know, so. The decision to be an assistant coach at Wisconsin with Stu Jackson, what made you make that decision? 
I was at UMass Lowell Division Two. Now mm-hmm. they're Division One, but at the time we were Division Two. Mm-hmm. You know, and and you're looking for opportunities to move up and to go to the Big Ten. Mm-hmm. And my brother had worked for Stu with the Knicks, so like I knew about Stu. And, and I've always thought this: jobs are about who you get a chance to work for and who you get a chance to work with. I knew from my brother's experience that not only was Stu a good basketball man, but he was just a good man to go and work for. And I'd never been at that level. And Mm -hmm. to be honest, never thought I'd have an opportunity to be at that level. I think looking at my dad's career and the way my brother and I came up, I always thought like, man, I hope someday I can get one of the really good small college coaching jobs, you know? That's where I saw myself. And so this opportunity to be in the Big Ten. Big like, Ten back then. It was, ooh, oh, yeah. Ooh, I mean, that was, <laughs> that was big dog. Yeah, that was yeah. big. You know. Sign respite. Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, and you know. Y'all had Griffith and Finn, we, right? Well, yeah. we recruited Richard Griffith, but Finley was already there. Tracy mm-hmm. Webster. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was like, hey, this is a chance to go to the Big Ten. I mean, it was just a a great opportunity at that stretch in my life. I was like sort of in awe and I sort of got the opportunity because of my brother, which is also how I eventually got opportunity with Pat Riley. And that's, got that's, what, I, that's what I want to add. Yeah, that. I mean, it's, it's like I have so much appreciation for, for my brother because he sort of was, you know, ahead of me in his career, even though he was younger. And not only did I learn a lot from him, but the fact that he did such a great job for these guys made them say, well, shit, if he's anything like Jeff, right. yeah. and at least you'll take a, a chance. Now you got to be able to do the job once you get it. But yeah, that's how I got in with, uh, with Stu. I think I was sort of, uh, it'd be interesting to see what Stu said, but I think I was sort of, Stu knew who he wanted to hire, but like, well, let me at least talk to him. You know, he's Jeff's brother and the in the whole thing. And so I got an opportunity. I remember the final four was in Minneapolis that mm-hmm. year. And so I didn't go to the final, but I flew up and we met off site. So nobody saw anything, but at a hotel up there and I met with him for a few hours and then got the job offer. It was, it was tremendous. And then, you know, Ray McCallum was on that staff. It was a holdover, but then we ended up hiring Sean Miller, who's obviously done a great job as a college coach. So not only did I get a chance to work for Stu and learn, but to be around those guys. And then with, you know, you're a Chicago guy, but to be around like guys like Mike Finley and Tracy Webster and and then recruit Richard Griffith. And I'm still in touch with all of those guys, you know, so tremendous experience. How was it going from there to your first time being in the NBA, going to go work with Pat Riley? In the, in I know the, the weather was better. The weather was a lot better. (laughs) But let me tell you my first experience. So, you know, I get the job. I'm working for Pat. And and this was like maybe only a month before the start of training camp because Pat was just coming on board. We had this big rookie camp, 30 guys. And like all some guys who had been in the, you know, CBA before it was a G League and some guys who were undrafted rookies and all of this, and and obviously being in the Big Ten, I'd seen talent, but never that much talent all in one gym at the same time, right? So I'm like sort of in awe. It's day one, and we're running this camp, and you're not doing a lot of coaching. It's more getting them organized so they could play and evaluate, and I'm like, damn, 
There's a lot of dudes that can play. And then, so we go to lunch between the morning session and the afternoon session. So I'm there. We had this older assistant who's since passed away, Scotty Robertson. I go there with him and then Pat comes in. As soon as Pat sits down, I'm like sort of in awe, all this talent in the gym. As soon as he sits down, Scotty Robertson said, well, there's nobody here that can play for us. And I just went, oh, shit. That's the most talent I've ever seen in one gym in my life. And Scotty blew all 30 of them out of the water at once. And Pat said, yeah, it's a little disappointing. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> so then you go to training camp. And we hadn't traded for Alonzo yet. But it was like Glenn Rice. Yeah. And, you know, I'm just like, oh, my God. Like, the NBA is a whole different level. And I remember, I think back to it now because, you know, like I had had Michael Finley and we played against Big Dog and the whole thing. And I remember when we were here, Q, and maybe in his like third or fourth year, they asked J.J. Redick, like, well, you played against a lot of pros when you were at Duke. Like, what's the difference? And he said, well, the difference is the best college teams maybe have two or three NBA players. He said, <laughs> How many NBA players do you think the average NBA team has? Right, yeah. All of them. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's yeah. the difference. Like, yeah. all of them. Every guy out there, potentially, especially if you're not ready, could bust your ass on any, any given, given day. The 12th dude <laughs> yeah. could come on and bust your ass. And you're there through training camp. I'll be honest. Like, I'm going to my first training camp. I coached in college for 14 years. I thought I knew the game well and the whole thing. And I was scared, like going to the first training camp practice, like, you know, these dudes are at a whole new level. Some of them are veteran guys. Like, what do you, and I just remember Pat saying to me, listen, just coach. And when they figure out, you know what you're talking about, you'll be fine. Like, mm. you know, that's all they want to know is that you can help them and you know what you're, you're talking, talking about. about. They don't yeah. care where you came from or anything else. And I've always remembered that and he said just relax and do your thing don't try to impress anybody just coach so that means that you was there for the very beginning and the inception of this the heat Knicks rivalry oh tell me how was that the first game y'all played the Knicks that year because this is the first year he's leaving New York and coming to Miami how was that first time y'all played the Knicks that year? I remember going in there, man, and we weren't very good in Miami that year. Now, we made some trades and ended up making the playoffs, but early in the year we weren't good. But guys knew how important it was to him. I think we took like five charges in the first quarter of that game. <laughs> but I remember when we came, when Pat came onto the court. So, you know, you're an assistant, you're out there early. But then Pat comes walking out to the court. Oh, my God, the crowd was unbelievable like they're mfing him like i remember turning around once this one dude was like red faced <laughs> with his like maybe eight or nine year old daughter next to him throwing out f-bombs his back i'm like Yo, that's your daughter like i remember bob mcadoo and i going these people are crazy absolutely cr and they booed him the entire game we got off to a good start, but then we weren't good enough. We couldn't make enough shots, and we ended up losing. But, God, I've never seen anything like pure hatred. The guy took him to the finals. All he did was take another job, and it was, like, absolutely nuts. When was the first time it got physical on the court, though, with the team? Well, as always. You know how the 90s were anyway. <laughs> I mean, it was – come on. It was physical all the time. 
And it wasn't just the rivalry. You just had a lot of physical dudes. Yeah. I mean, you know, you're going to put Charles Oakley and then eventually Larry Johnson and Anthony Mason and guys that played in that rivalry and, you know, Dan Marley and then Alonzo. And, I mean, come on. It was going to be physical all the time. And the thing I remember, like you notice now, NBA games, guys will be out there like talking to each other on the court. I'm not talking trash. Like they're like friends at every yeah. dead ball on the other. It wasn't like, you guys remember even when you first came in, it was not like that. No. And I remember like maybe eight or nine years after Dan Marley was done playing, somebody in Miami did an interview talking about the rivalry and, you know, Dan was always matched up with Allen Houston. And they asked him, like, what's the most memorable thing you remember you guys saying to each other, you and Allen Houston? And Dan said, I don't think we ever spoke one word to each other <laughs> in that whole rivalry. Like, it was just competing the whole time, like going out. and But you know how it is, too. Like, I see it now when I see ex-players out there like from that era, like you legitimately hated guys at the time playing against them. Like when Keith Askins, when he got waived in his final year in Miami, my brother was a coach in New York, had great respect for him. They tried to claim him off waivers. They wanted him to go. Keith said, I can't do that. Mm. I can't do that. I can't do it. I can't go. Like his career ended as a player. He couldn't. Right. Do it, and it worked out good because he's still working in in Miami. But it was that kind of thing. But the respect they have on both sides, yeah. Like you listen to them talk, they may not like those guys, but the respect, man, because of the competition level every single night. But, I mean, I wish we had a little more of that. I don't know if you want to call it hatred, but that animosity. I wish yeah. we had a little more of that just now. A, just yeah, be like, more competitive. Absolutely, like. No, I ain't trying to be your best friend. I you know who's got it. a little bit of that? He's Giannis. Like Giannis won't, you know how these guys all get together to work out in the offseason? Not Giannis. <laughs> Only guys he'll work out for are other Bucks guys. Like, no, yeah. no, he ain't working. He don't want to be friends yeah. with those guys. You know, it's just different. Y'all made the moves to get Tim. Y'all made the moves to get Alonzo. For you to get there when they, they didn't have all this, to turn it into a team that can compete with the Knicks. How was that process of yeah. how Pat Riley pulled all that together? Well, we got Alonzo the, literally the night before the opening game of the season. So we'd gone through training camp with one whole roster, and we got Alonzo the night before it started for Glenn Rice, Matt Geiger, I, f I forget yeah. what else, Khalid Reeves, I think. And then we got, like, Pete Myers and LaRon Ellis back in the yeah. deal. So – Obviously, Lonzo just changed the whole mood of everything where you thought you had a chance to compete. And, I mean, Lonzo is one of the greatest competitors yeah. there was in the league. Like, I mean, he would give it to you every single night. And, and shake so, your hand hard. Yeah, and everything <laughs> changed. But then we went through the, the Hardaway trade. It was I, – I remember this. We played in Philly either the night or two nights before the trading deadline. And you can still look back. I, we beat Philly, but I think it was the first or second lowest scoring game since the shot clock era in the NBA. Like we won like 59 to like 56, an NBA game. Yeah. Scotty Robertson, his old assistant coach, sat by me the whole night and he just kept going. He'd like elbow me. 
look at the scoreboard <laughs> like the whole night. <laughs> it was the worst game. And at the time, we would get on the plane to watch film, but it wasn't like now where you had it on your computer. Like you remember those old like one piece TV and VCR yeah, and the whole right. thing. So we'd have to get them down and that's what you do. And then you throw your VHS on. So I got my VHS going in. Pat gets on the plane. He goes, do not watch that film. We will have a whole new team the next time we take the court. And I was like, okay, damn. Right. So we get back, and then the next day, we traded five guys for five guys. We got Hardaway, Chris Gatling, Ty Corbin, Walt Williams, mm, and Tony Smith you from needed. Phoenix. So three different <laughs> trades. Our first game after the trade, we play the Jordan Bulls, the mm. year they won 70. We don't even have these guys here. Yeah. Right. We got Tony Smith in. He had never practiced with us. He ended up, play, started, played like 30-some minutes. We brought Jeff Malone off the injured list the last year he played. It was one of those things. It was like everybody had no pressure on him. Rex Chapman had like, I don't oh, know. Oh, that's the game where he went oh, crazy. Yeah. Oh, I just saw that game the other day. The <laughs> oh, no, no. It was crazy. Crazy! Like every shot he threw up went in. The crowd's bowing to him, yeah. and we beat Jordan's <laughs> Bulls. Like the whole thing got over. And the second thing I remember about this trade, we were talking about how smart guys are. So you know, at that time, you had big playbooks. You guys remember at that time, yeah, like yeah. coaches had. At, now I don't know. Like team might have three pages. I mean, but back then we had this whole playbook. So my job was we had these five new guys, Pat's like take them before practice, after practice like put in as much as you can. So I got Gatling and he, I mean I got all these guys and we're down there after practice, we're going through stuff and I come back up to the office and Pat says, "What can we run with Tim tomorrow night?" And I said, "Pat, you can run whatever you want." He said, "Come on, Stan." I said, "Pat, can run whatever you want. I've never seen anybody pick shit up like that. Yeah. Like literally, the, I mean, Pat had maybe the biggest playbook in the league at the time. Mm -hmm. I said, literally, Pat, you can run whatever you want. Now, a couple of those other dudes, I don't want to throw out any names on a yeah. podcast. Right. You better keep it to like two plays. But yeah. thumb yeah. up, thumb down. Yeah. Like <laughs> thumb up, I pop, thumb down, I roll. Like yeah. let's keep it to that. But with Tim run anything, Pat said. Come on. He didn't believe me. I said, Pat, I'm telling you, whatever you want to run, Tim's got it. You know how, like, if people learn a foreign language, they learn the word for microphone in that language. That's all it was with Tim. He'd seen every play in the league. It's just, what's the language? What is the heat what's called? The, yeah, I know the, the, right, I know the, the play, and he could put it all together. I was like, Yo, man, this is a different dude right here. When you first heard that you was going to be the head coach, you done put all the years in in Miami, and now you, you're hearing you're going to be the head coach. What was your first impression of that? You know, well, it was weird. It was weird timing because we went through the whole preseason. Like, we played all of our exhibition games. Pat was the head coach. So it wasn't like a normal off-season thing. And then I just remember Pat, he came in – the next day, and he would have to walk by my office. You know how those offices yeah, are in Miami. Yeah, so I was the last one. He comes by my office, and he pokes his head in, and he said, are you ready? And I'm like, am I ready for what? Like practice? I said, yeah, I left my notes on your desk. He said, no, are you ready? And I'm like, 
Like, I don't know. I don't know what you're talking <laughs> right, about. Right. He said, come on in. So we go in the office. I got my, I would leave him notes every day on like what I think we should work on, all that stuff. That's how you could, like, we didn't have meetings then with him a lot. It was mm. just, you know, you leave him notes. He looks at the suggestions. He does his thing. So he brings me in and he, he says it again. Are you ready? I said, Pat, ready for what? And he said, I'm going to step down and you're going to be the head coach. Are you ready? And I was like, <laughs> I don't know if you can be ready for that, but, mm -hmm. but yeah, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready mm -hmm. to go. And so that's all I can remember. You know, the other thing I remember about that day, so I become the head coach that day. My kids are still young. We had bought tickets. My wife had bought tickets. The little kids, you remember the Wiggles? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We had bought tickets for the Wiggles. So I get the job and we're like downstairs, like watching the Wiggles <laughs> in this concert <laughs> on the day I got the job. But yeah. then... You know, we get going and like we lose our first seven games. Uh -huh. Like I'm 0-7 and the seventh one was against my brother in Houston. I'm like, damn, man, you would think the dude, like you got a good team, you got yeah, Yao and you Tracy, one. you can give us one. Right. Damn, your brother <laughs> needs one, right? So they busted us and then we ended up beating Cleveland finally. Actually on the second night of a back-to-back, -back, we got our first one, but man, it was a, uh, it was a tough start. It's different. I don't care. You know, like we were before we started today, Q and I, we were talking about Jamal Mosley, like, and we were talking about, it's just hard, man. I mean, mm -hmm. like, I don't care how you've prepared yourself. And I've been a head coach in college for eight years. It's just different. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's different. Like all the decisions in an NBA game is a lot different than college because you get down to the end of the game, there's timeouts, advance the ball. I mean, a minute, you might get four possessions. Like, right. you can do yeah. a lot, and there's just more coaching involved. I mean, I remember Chuck Daly back in the day, and he had come from Penn. He said there's more coaching decisions in the last two minutes of an NBA game than there is in a college season. <laughs> you know, and I don't know if that's true, but it is different. I've heard Spo talk about it. Like, it took him a couple years to get past the imposter syndrome, like – you're like, man, I don't know if I belong doing this thing, you know? So Then he's got looking at you for leadership. No, that's exactly right, you yeah. know? And, and so you've got to project that you've got all this confidence, but, you know, you're questioning yourself a lot. Yeah, you know, you really are. Like, you're questioning yourself, like, am I doing enough to help these teams? Well, what I ended up learning over the course of my career is it never stops. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I'm going to say the best coaches – are still doing that, questioning mm -hmm. themselves, because you feel a responsibility to a group of guys, to a team, to help them as much as you can. And it never stopped for me. I took every loss my entire career as my fault. Not that I totally blame myself, obviously, mm -hmm. to players, you know, the whole thing. But if I would have done this, if I would have done this, we could have had a chance to win. And so it doesn't stop. So it really never changed for me. What was your first impressions of D-Wade? Like at what point did like, cause obviously you saw him some point before y'all got him there. Like when did you hear that that's who y'all were like honing in on? And then like, what was it like when he like got there and you got to see him? I'll tell you where, where you knew. So I was still an assistant then because I didn't get the job till after training camp. So I coached a summer league team. Yeah, I was there. You were there. You were playing with Cleveland with mm -hmm. LeBron and him. You guys were loaded. Yeah. Boozer, 
LeBron, LeBron the whole thing, right? <laughs> yeah. So the first night, because of LeBron, they played at the old arena here. Yeah, remember did. that? Because all no. you guys, and I remember because we had, there was a games where we at 3, 5, and 7. We had the 3 o'clock game, yeah. I think, against Milwaukee. And so, you know, like when the game started, it was like a quarter full. Mm-hmm. And then a few more people came in, went in the locker room, did your post-game talk to the team. And we come out, and it's the 5 o'clock game going on, not even your guys' game. You couldn't find a place to sit because yeah. they didn't charge. The yeah. fucking place was full. Hey. All about LeBron. So, But yep. then after the first night, they moved it. It's back you to know, the practice facility. Yeah, to the RDV. And then we played you. And so it's we're going down last possession, and we give the ball to D. Wade. He runs the clock down all the way and hits the game winner against them. Yeah. I was like, okay, this dude, <laughs> this dude is uh, he for real. He had a, a great real. game, great summer league. No, game. I mean, and he was playing. I've always thought this as a coach, particularly in the NBA. Like, one of the things you're trying to do, like, is you're trying to figure out how to get your best players on the floor. And so we had Eddie Jones at the two at the time, right? And we had Karan at the three. Mm-hmm. So which one of those guys are you putting on the bench for Dwayne, right? Mm-hmm. So we said, no, fuck it. We're going to play Dwayne as our point guard. So mm-hmm. we went into summer league and we played him totally as a point. He wasn't a point guard in high school. He wasn't the point guard at Marquette. Right, no. We're playing him at the point. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. man, this, this is a different dude. Like, you know, and the other thing you I got, you picked up from him right away. It was interesting because... I remember Pat probably wouldn't admit that, but Pat had, I mean, he knew we, we wanted Dwayne in the draft. I'm not saying that. But he had one misgiving, and that was Dwayne in his workouts. You know, you guys went through those draft workouts. I heard you, I've heard you guys talk about yeah. him on here. And, you know, the Heat, like everything, I mean, they pushed Cute. the shit out of you in the workout, right? And Dwayne sort of, uh, when he practices – when he's doing workouts like that, like he's maybe three quarter speed. Like he's not a like hundred yeah. mile an hour guy. Yeah. He's just not right. And so that bugged Pat a little, you know, Pat wanted guys going a hundred yeah. miles an hour, but the thing you picked up from Dwayne and it continued through, I mean, I was only there for his first two years, but like Spo was a guy who worked with him at the time yeah. and Spo would work with him on something after practice and they'd be going like half speed. And Pat would come over to me and go, man, you got to get him working harder. I'm like, but Pat, watch. Whatever they worked on, it would be something new. This dude would be doing it the next night in a game. Like, usually that <laughs> takes forever. Right. Like, next night in a game, he was doing it. Like, the word may be used too much, but he had this, like, genius. Like, he could see something do it a little bit and put it in his game. Like he didn't need a thousand repetitions or Mm -hmm. something like a lot of guys. And so that's something we noticed right away too. Then you go through the whole season and by the end of the year, he's clearly our best player and his first playoff game ever. Game winner. Ever. Game winner (laughs) on Baron Davis. And the thing with him was great. I always said, and I would argue this with anybody. I know people will have other guys. He's the best end-of-the-game last-shot guy I've ever seen. I know I'm biased. But here's the thing with D. Wade, too. 
not only did he shoot a high percentage in those situations, like if it's tie game, he's getting the last shot. You ain't getting one back. He's not shooting it too early. Like, and he was a rookie in his first playoff game. I think he left them three tenths of a second the other way yeah, I remember and that. dropped it in. And it's like, and after the game, he was like, damn, man, he said to me something about putting the ball in a rookie's hand in that situation. I said, I never thought about putting the ball in the hands of a rookie. I said, put the ball in the hands of your best player. Like, right. That's all it was. But right off the bat, he was just, and you play with LeBron, so you, you know, like right from the beginning, like I coached those guys, both of them in their first all-star game. And I've coached a couple other guys, like even in 2010 in their first all-star game. And they're sort of like in awe, right? Those two guys, they looked like, yeah, this is where we belong. And this is where we're going to be. Like it was, it was nothing to them, man. And Dwayne had that air about him and he wasn't arrogant. He wasn't cocky. He knew he had a lot to learn. But he knew who he was and what he could do from the very beginning. And he could handle mistakes. You know, to me, that's a big challenge of young players because you guys ask guys this all the time on your podcast with the players about who was a guy who like busted their ass mm -hmm. when they came in. You're going to hit that adversity as a young every guy. Time. To me, the when you're going to know about a guy is how he can handle those moments mm. because if it's rolling well shit anybody's mm, great when it's rolling but Dwayne could handle those moments and go okay like I remember we played the Pistons we should have won but we played him game one of that playoff series Eastern Conference Finals his second year and they were switching everything and we were having trouble in the pick and roll and they thought like Oh, oh, we got Tayshaun Prince on him and the size and <laughs> all this, and we got the answer. First of all, anytime you think you've got an answer to the great players, you're fooling yourself, you know? Yeah. And sure enough, like the next night, like put whoever you want on him. He was just game two. Like, all right, you got me game one. He learned from it, saw what was going on, busted ass in game two. <laughs> I, I want to talk about the pedigree that Pat Riley put into the Miami Heat. Like, if you're saying, for instance, like, he's not a Miami Heat guy. Like, it's, it's heard around the league that, you know, that you got to be a certain player to play for Miami and be in that type of environment and culture. Can you tell us more about, like, the standard that he set for you to come to Miami and play in Miami? Because, you know, you, you always say, here in Miami, you hear the beaches and stuff, like, oh, I'm finna go and have a good time. But when it comes to that professional team, you gotta have body fat air. <laughs> and you know what? And every, everybody knew it, right? It got, that word got out around the league yeah. quick. Fast. Quick. Yeah. Like, if you go to Miami, you're gonna be expected to have this level of conditioning. You're gonna practice longer and harder than you most teams. Have. Yeah. You know, like it was out there. And yeah. I think that benefited them a lot because people who didn't want that, well, they didn't well, they away. didn't want to be there. I remember when guys used to come in, even if they were just coming in to work out, mm -hmm. but we or even if we traded for guys or whatever, like guys would come in and Keith Askins all the time, like new guy would come in. Keith would be like, yo, man, welcome to the rock. How long you in for? Keith <laughs> <laughs> was crazy. Because it was but but if you were that type of guy, you might not like it, but you knew you were going to be treated with respect and stuff too. Like they were going to respect you as a worker and you were going to have a chance to make it. And, and Spo says all the time, 
you know, I hear him say it, read his quotes all the time. He says, we're not for everybody. Yes. And, and I think that's great. I remember Bobby Knight long time ago, right, before he went nuts. <laughs> um, I remember him saying he was griping about a guy who had quit his team, right? And so he was griping to one of his captains, like, this dude, like the whole thing. And the guy just looked at him. He said, coach, you're, you're not for everybody. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a good lesson for coaches too. Like every coach isn't for every player and every player isn't for every coach. And that doesn't make, that doesn't mean the player is wrong or the coach, coach is wrong. wrong. Like you're not going to be for everybody. And I think that's one of the first things you have to learn. Cause if you're trying to be for everybody as a coach, I think you won't, you won't be any good for anybody, to be yeah. quite honest. Like, you got to be who you are. And in Miami, we, everybody knew what the, what the standard was going to be. You know, like the conditioning test every year. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, you're going to run. You, when we first started it now, we used to have to run 17s, five of them. And I think, like, the point guards had to average 58 seconds in the whole thing. I remember Bimbo Coles, our first one, Scotty Robertson, this older guy, and he lost count. So, Bimbo, so you got to <laughs> average 58, no, no. and Bimbo had to go 19. So his first time was like a minute and two or a minute and three. So now he's going to have to average 56 on the other. Bimbo's like, this bullshit. <laughs> like, I ran 19. Like, Scotty, what the hell are you doing? And Bimbo was like, I want somebody else over here. Calvin, it was a big deal because Bimbo was in the best shape of anybody. Yeah. And you got oh. no margin for error in 58. Definitely don't got you no know, margin for error on that and seven and Like a minute, three. Oh, he was so pissed. But it was a big deal in Miami. And then the crazy thing was, if you didn't make the conditioning test, you had to do it before practice the next day. Well, wait, you're going twice a day. Yeah. If you couldn't make it the first day do it before, day. There, there was no chance. You were going to be running that All week. every morning until <laughs> training camp was over. And All the week. next chance you had was when you got down, like you had finally had a day off and then only <laughs> one practice. That was your next chance to do it. I mean, it was great. But then, you know, Sean Lampley. That's my boy. Sean passed out. We were doing it. We had changed it because it was, you know, 17, there's too many turns. So Bill Ferran, the strength coach, convinced Pat, like, we Great can do the same live. thing, but we got to do 10 links at a court because there's fewer turns. And Lamp had gone, you know, because he was sort of a fringe guy, right, mm -hmm. trying to make it. So he had worked out with us all summer, but at the end of the summer – he got a contract to go play in the Philippines with a team for the playoffs. And, you know, you need the cash. So Lamp went over there, and he got, like, a little sick and stuff. He lost some weight. He came back. Now we're going to training camp. And, I mean, he'd worked his ass off. He was definitely in good enough shape. But he was sick, and he's trying to make it. And he went down, and they had to take him to the hospital. That stuff all changed after that. Right. It all changed. We didn't do it. I, I don't know if they've gone back to it, but we didn't do it anymore. It's like, man, no. Because, I mean, I, was, I think it was Karan's rookie year. And, I mean, those guys were freaked out. They were like, oh, shit. Like, you know, <laughs> hey, that sort of kills the mood on the first day of camp. Somebody's getting hospitalized. Let me ask you, you had Udonis's rookie year. How proud are you to see the career that Udonis has them? Oh, gee. Yeah, listen, I mean, those are the great stories in the NBA, right? He and Wade came in as rookies. But, you know, Udonis, here's the thing. So 
Udonis had a great success in college mm-hmm. and then comes out and nobody takes him. And yeah. he had to go to Europe. He had to lose 50 pounds, yeah. had to change his – and then he's got to make it as like coming in with no – The hardest team to make it on. Yeah. <laughs> well, perfect team for him though. Yes. You know, that's the thing. Him. So Miami's tough and everything, but like I said, like I'm not sure Udonis with where his skill level was and he was only 6'8". When he first came in the league, I'm not sure that he would have made it everywhere. You know, mm-hmm. like his work ethic was great, and that was highly respected and, where uh, we are. Yeah. But right off the bat, had everybody's respect. I mean, the way he did things all the time, never made an excuse, worked his ass off. It was incredible. And what I've liked watching is. You know, I loved watching his development as a player. And I think, unfortunately, because it's been so long since he actually played, mm-hmm. people forget, like, this dude was good. Yeah, yeah, like, he yeah. was a big part of those championship teams. I, I, he yeah. was good as a basketball player. But his leadership and his wisdom and stuff with young players and then just what he's done in the community and business-wise yeah. for himself, like, that's somebody that every NBA player should be looking at and saying, you know, what do you want to be as a person, as a player? And then what do you want to do in the future? Like, follow that guy, you yeah. know? I mean, and what an incredible thing to go to high school in Miami, play at the University of Florida. One year he had to be away from the state. Right. One year he yeah. used to, he had to go over to France and then come back in his whole career right there, all in the same state and almost all of it right in the same city. I mean, and he's the rebound legend. Oh, no, he's unbelievable. You know, he, he lead the rebounds in, in uh, Miami Heat history, yeah, so every no, time no. he grabbed one, that's a record. That's exactly right. <laughs> now he's, he's the best, you know. There's nobody better than him, you know. And I remember, like, we used to play shooting games for money, right? You know, I've always done that stuff. We would let the rookies pick first, right? Who do you want to partner with? And those two guys would pick each other all the time, him and Wade. And, of course, they weren't going to win. Neither one of them were very good shooters as a rookie. They would never win, right, like the whole year. And so, finally, we're, like, right at the end of the season. So I said something like, all right, like, we're going, like, five times the money today. They won. And they were, like, trying to convince people, like, they'd set it up all year to win on the last day, you know, but it was – those guys were great, but that was the other thing. Like, that's how those guys were, like the loyalty. Like, you guys probably would have done that yeah. with the Clippers. Like, instead of picking, win, instead though, of like picking like Eddie Jones, yeah. who's going to help you win, they're picking each other each every other. day. But those guys had that yeah, allegiance bond. to each other from like day one. I mean, and it was, and still do. I mean, I think they hold each other in extremely high regard because they literally went through all of it. Together. together. Yeah. Closing the chapter to Miami and having them all them years in Miami and getting opportunity to come to Orlando right down the road and start with a young team and to revamp that team. How was that transition for you? Because Orlando, new stadium, they was doing a lot of new stuff in the city to, to change it around to get it back popping. So how was it for you to come in Orlando and bring something new to them? Yeah, it, it was a great opportunity. You know, I was their second choice. So they had they had hired Billy Donovan. You know, I didn't know it at the time, right? But I came in and interviewed with them. And, you know, you're doing the interview. And, 
Otis and Bob Vandewide, who was the son-in-law of the DeVosses, was running the team at the time, and Dave Twardzik, right? So they're all sitting in the interview, and the interview was good and everything, but you're getting into the, near the end of it, and they just keep looking at their watch. I'm like, God damn, man. I mean, <laughs> like, what's going on? Well, I find out afterwards, like, they literally left my interview and went to Gainesville to Damn. offer Billy the job, Billy yeah. Donovan. So, Damn. like, I was, like, the backup because you want to have, like, some, what if Billy said no? Right. And the whole thing. So Billy takes the job. He has a press conference. I remember The this. whole thing. He has a press conference. So now I'm out in Vegas interviewing for the Sacramento job mm-hmm. with Jeff Petrie and Wayne Cooper. And we're in Vegas because the Maloofs owned the team at the yeah, time, okay. and that's where they were based, right? Yeah. So I'm out to dinner in Vegas, and, you know, like one of those times you're having dinner, and, you know, like your phone's just vibrating. You know somebody's trying to call you, but it's like one after the other. Mm-hmm. That was at the time, like, I had a flip phone. Yeah. I'm like, God damn, why does this thing keep... So I look. No, I, I get up and I say, because you don't want to be rude, I got to go to the bathroom. Call. I go down, I see the phone. It's my brother. He's made like six calls in six minutes. <laughs> So I'm like, oh, shit, I hope something didn't come from my parents or something. That's what you're thinking, right? right? And so I go back. So I call him. He's like, look, whatever you do, don't take that job right now if they offer it to you. I think Billy's going back to Florida. And I'm like, what? And he goes, no, I think he's going back to Florida and the whole thing. And sure enough, Billy decided to go back. Well, I'm the only other guy they'd interviewed. And if you, you know, if you have something like that, it's a little bit embarrassing, the guy going back. So you don't want to be waiting like three weeks to make your next hire. Who are you going to hire? You only interviewed one other guy. Right. So you hired me. And Otis had the best line ever at the press conference because, you know, they got turned down and now they're hiring me. And they asked him about like the thing. And he said, hey, look, we identified two outstanding coaches and we hired both of them. (laughs) (laughs) It was great. But it was a great opportunity for me, you know, because – I'd had the opportunity in Miami, but for good and for bad, at least at that time, I don't think it's as true now because Spoh's been there a long time. But at that time, that was still Pat's team, right? And you came here, you had a chance to sort of put your own mark on That's what I was going to say. And that was a tremendous opportunity for me. Plus, on a personal level, my wife's mom and stepfather had already lived up here for 20-some years. Oh, so right on time. Yeah, so we were coming right home. We ended up moving like four or five miles from them. I mean, it was just a, uh, it was a great opportunity and obviously, you know, a really, really good team. So I was very, very lucky to get that opportunity. I want to get from your standpoint because we've talked about it previously on here. We feel that Dwight obviously was should have been on that top 75 list. And you coached him for most of his dominant reign. Can you just talk about how he literally dominated? Like, defensively, like, obviously his offensive game came on a little bit later, but, like, from the very jump, just talk about how, how good and, like, all-time good he was as a defender. Yeah, look, the time I was here, to me, the only two guys you could even talk about in his league at that time were LeBron and Kobe was still playing, right? Mm -hmm. That was it. Like, there was no one else to talk about, in my opinion, because you're talking both ends of the floor. I mean, he was three straight years a defensive player of the year. And, you know, we were always – 
one, two, three, something like that in defense. And if you look out there, like I love, we had really good players, but we didn't necessarily have really good defenders. Mm -hmm. You know, we were, it was because of him. And every other guy's put in great effort. I don't want to, <laughs> but what made us a really good defense was him, was him right? And then on offense, he's still getting you 20 plus. And we didn't even like go to him a whole lot. <laughs> right, yeah. You know, like we weren't like, Throwing him the ball all the time to let him get numbers, but everything revolved around him. You know, I mean, he would roll and at that time, you know, suck in the entire defense. And then we had shooters around him. I mean, look, for him to not be in the top 75, that was just a personality thing. There's no way, you know, I mean, (laughs) I think Anthony Davis is great, but at the time they selected it, you're selecting on the careers they had had up to that point. Come on. I mean, (laughs) it's not close. There's not like, you can think a guy is better. That's fine. (laughs) Like that's a subjective thing, right? It's like, I was arguing with people the other day, like, it's fine if you want to tell me that Michael Jordan was a better basketball player than LeBron James. That's fine. You can you can make a case for that. What you can't make a case for is that Michael Jordan had a better career right. than LeBron James. You can't make a case for that. No. And when you're going top 75, you cannot make a case. And, I, and I'm only bringing out one guy. There's a lot more. Yeah. But you cannot make a case that Anthony Davis, when they picked that team, or even now, had a better career than Dwight, Dwight Howard. Howard. That's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. You know, but people didn't didn't like him. And funny thing is they did love him That's for the, the cr- time he was here. Like he was outvoting oh, LeBron, he was Kobe, whoever, like for the all-star leading, like he was wiping it out, like clean. When I came here, I, t- I tell people I had to learn how to play defense different. I had to stop fouling. Like, I had never played with somebody that was literally like he was going to erase whatever mistake you made. <laughs> you could play people way. Like, you remember how I used to play? I could get all into people because if somebody get by me, big fella waiting. Yeah. <laughs> play with me if you want to. I'm going to be all, and I'm going to talk and do everything. I, I felt a whole different level of confidence. I could come out here talk shit like, go ahead. Like, you know what I'm saying? Go ahead, run past me. <laughs> it, it, when I first got here, it would be time. People, somebody get fouled. You know, I'm going to foul them. Big fella be coming like the solar eclipse, like, no, don't foul. He all oh, he holding on to the backboard yeah, so he exactly. don't come. I'm like, God damn. Like, and then after I started learning, it was like he putting it in the third row. Boom, boom. <laughs> Just great. Big fella shut that thing down. That's why when it came, I was like, oh no, nah, like y'all can't do this. Nah. Like, nah, this is this ain't cool. This is like, this is a no-brainer. It is like, a no-brainer. It was for real. Like he was that dominant that it was it shouldn't even been a question. Well, here's the thing, too, that he never got enough credit for, I didn't think, but you know, until he finally had the back injury the the last yeah. year we were here, right? He had the back injury, which people thought he was faking because he and I had yeah. had our thing. Yeah. But he ended up having surgery and right. the whole thing. And then it really sort of – He was never his hurt career, before that. Right. So he played every night. But that was back in an age where we actually practiced. Yeah. Like, we practiced. He never took practices off. No. Yeah. And I remember saying to him, like, I would always at that time put – the third center on his team or the backup center so he could get he take reps off play. and he wouldn't let him play. He play. <laughs> he'd come, he'd play 38 minutes, do all that, come into practice the next day, take every rep. So people would look, I used to hate it. Like 
because he'd laugh and smile on the court. So they tried to paint him like he wasn't a serious competitor. And I was like, man, don't be looking at what's on the guy's face. Look yeah. at his body of work, work yeah. out there. It was like. And like he said, though, for him to be pricing like that, for him to, because like superstars, you know, they're going to take one or two. Like big fella used to just be out there. All the time. Like, mm-hmm. like now he might goof around yeah, a little. Yeah, yeah, but, but like. He would go hard, too, all the time. It was just, you know, he didn't get enough credit for that. I just. You know, that incident I had with him, I I regret, and the only regret I have about it is I think it had a lot to do with sort of uh, ruining his reputation of who he was. If people had actually talked to me, like I've never, I said the truth about what I said Mm. there, but anything I've ever said about the guy is just what I said here. Great player, hard worker. Should he have been in the top 75? Yeah, put him in the top 50. I mean, this dude, one of the most dominant players of his generation. And again, going back to it, we've said it like three times. The dude was so smart. We used to do, so when we did scouting reports, we used to do them different ways. But in Orlando, we would go do our walkthrough. You do the walkthrough, the film. We were here forever, D. But (laughs) And then we would divide up by groups, like the wing guys, the big guys, mm-hmm. the, the point guards, right? Yeah, right. And we would talk about personnel. So Brendan Malone had the big guys, right? Brendan and Pat. And so they would ask guys, like, you know, like, oh, mm-hmm. tell me about so and so. And Dwight would not only know about everybody, he'd be up, like, standing up. You'd see him in the locker room, like, demonstrating the guys' moves, moves and mm-hmm. stuff. And we had to make a rule. We wouldn't let him talk anymore. And he was like, why? I said, because these other guys, I need to know if they know what's going on with the players. And they never have to answer a question because you answer every one of them. And when he was with Team USA, they had Mike Fratello was like, I don't know what he was doing with Team USA, but they had him call me one day and they said, Stan, like, they wanted me to call you like, we've got Dwight. What can we do with him on pick and rolls, like on defense? I said, Mike. Whatever you want. (laughs) I said, and if you want to adjust five times in the game, go ahead. He's going to pick it up. Like, this guy is smart as hell. Mm -hmm. He was a different level, the smartest. I coach good big guys, but he was the smartest big guy I ever coached. Now, Shaq was really, really smart too. But in terms of stuff like that, there was nobody like Dwight. I mean, Dwight studied the league. He knew and everything. I tell, and I tell you, like, he was a name him from Chris Paul to Darren Williams to whoever. He got out and he got a poke on them guys. Oh, yeah. And, got, oh, and poked no. the ball away. I'm talking about on the pick and roll. I ain't never seen big boys get out there like he would. He'll get out there. And I'm talking about name whoever the best point guard was. He'll get out there and he'll jump there and he'll poke the ball away real quick. I'd be like, God damn. Nobody can't do that but big fella get out there and he I'm talking about from the best of the best. He'll get one on him and he'll always, you know, he was goofy. He'd get excited. Hey, you see, I got out. Yeah, oh, yeah, no <laughs> like, he gonna come let you know. Like, I got the pop. Like, yo, this big dude, sick. Like, for real. Going into the uh, Eastern Conference Finals against LeBron them, you see all the commercials on TV with him and Kobe and you see the world wanting him and Kobe to meet in the finals going into that series sometimes that can be discouraging from players and you know you got to keep their motivation up what was your strategy and, and what did you know that your team could do to really beat LeBron and them that they everybody was trying to give them the finals 
Yeah, you know yeah. what? We had great confidence against them anyway. You know, like sometimes it's just how you match up with certain teams. So my first two years here, like we had beaten them consistently and we had even gone over to China and played them mm -hmm. like two games in the preseason and the whole thing. And we had, which people like, they sort of got on me once, but like we came back, they had been beating a, crap out of us in one of those games i left my dudes in in a <laughs> preseason game to beat them uh -huh. you know and people were always like come on man what is it? and i'm like hey we're here to win right but i think just the whole thing was we had always beaten them uh -huh. not always but i don't know they hadn't beaten us very much uh -huh. and so we had confidence Already against them coming in and i think that was the big thing, and we went into that series, like LeBron had an unbelievable series. I think scoring-wise, still the best series he ever had. So it's not like we shut him down, but you know they won 66 games that year. And no knock on anybody again, but their second best player was Mo Williams, like who's not gonna make the Hall of Fame. They had good players, but they didn't have like great players. And so we made the decision going in that we just couldn't give him everything. Like if he's gonna go out and get 30 and 12 assists and set those other guys up, well, then we're gonna have a hard time. So we were gonna try to play him one-on-one -on -one as best we could, you know? We played him with Keto and Pietrus, yep. Yeah. You know, and we're gonna try to play those guys. And he had big nights, but the other guys didn't have big nights. And the only other guy that we just, our bench struggled with, of all people, we could not stop Wally Zerbiak. Like, Zerbiak. Wally Zerbiak <laughs> was busting us. But we did a good job in that series against them because LeBron wasn't really, and you know LeBron, like you play with him, he wants to create for yeah, other yeah. people. And we were just like, we're going to stay home and we're going to try not to foul him in the whole thing. We should have swept them. Yeah. We should have swept them because we won game one. We had a huge comeback. We were down yeah. 20 in the first yeah, half. Richard hit the shot in the corner. We beat him. We were down 20 again in game two, and we had him. And that play that they still play on TV, I want to throw something at my TV every like year. They won that series. Every year. <laughs> like, he's going to hit that shot. I'm going to have to watch it 20 times. My producer at TNT, like, I'll just be sitting out there before a game. He goes, hey, I got – a clip to show you, and he'll show that clip <laughs> just to throw it at me. And in my reaction, you know, but he hit that shot. Otherwise, we would have swept them because we came home, and the two games here were were pretty good. But we got it to game six, and then Dwight just – game six was like, that's it. I'm taking this shit over. And they had nobody that could play him, and they were afraid to double him because we had so much shooting. And so they were leaving him one-on-one -on -one down there, and it was like, okay, forget it. You know, when you played in the finals against the Lakers, if it was anything that you can change, strategy wise, or you know, something that you might have wanted to say, what would it have been that you feel would have helped y'all win that finals? So, game four, right? We should have won, which would have evened the series. And Derek Fisher hit a three to send the game to yeah, overtime. Yeah. And they were a little different than what we thought coming out of the timeout. And Phil Jackson had done that several times. But he took the ball in the backcourt instead of, you know, most people advance it yeah, right. after the timeout. He took it in the backcourt. And we weren't clear with our team that when the clock got under six, eight, whatever we were going to do, that we wanted to take a foul. Wow. We didn't take yeah. a foul. And that was on me. It wasn't on 
players. That was on me. And so that game go to overtime and we lost. I mean, that's the one probably of any move in my entire NBA coaching career. That's well, and the LeBron game winner in in that round too, you know, because on that one, we had the play. I'd seen him run that play and what they wanted to do. Mike Brown used to run the pin down for LeBron late mm-hmm. in the game and he would fake up and they'd backdoor him back and throw the ball to the rim. Yeah. So we talked about that. Turk played it perfect, took away the back cut, had his body right there. So LeBron came up. I should have had the guy on the ball tracking LeBron. Yeah. I should have. And I didn't. So that one right there, I'm like, damn, we could have been up 2-0. So I was killing myself for that one. But then I still, to this day, kicking myself for Derek Fisher's three. I mean, had we found, I mean, who knows? But you win that game, it's 2-2. It's a whole different series. I mean, they still would have home court and the whole thing. But that was the thing to this day I'm kicking myself on. Your brother, how proud are you of him of all his success, for being the head coach, uh, the success he's had on TNT, just being a fan favorite and what he's created for himself, y'all as a whole for your family name, the Van Gundys. Like, yeah. everybody know the Van Gundys. <laughs> yeah, and, and listen, he's, you know, as I said earlier, like, he sort of blazed the trail for me. And he was a, gr- I mean, obviously, I'm biased, but he was a great head coach, really, yeah. really good. And I think the guy's, who played for him would back that up, mm-hmm. had a great toughness about him in a good way, you know, like, and then to like change careers and now be the best in the business doing something else. I think that it's really, it's really an amazing thing. But I, I think the thing I'm most proud of with him is just the kind of person he is and the way he represents himself in a game. Like he has unbelievable respect for the people in the league. Like he has great respect for players. And I think that comes across like, you know, he's far from being a hater. Like he has great respect for players. He has great respect for coaches. We both get criticized. If we get criticized for one thing, it's the most, they'll say we never like get on coaches and stuff. But I think that comes from, we both know how hard it is. And so just like you guys as players, like, you know the playing ain't real easy. So right, you're right. not, you may be critical, but you ain't going to totally jump on somebody yeah. because it's not because you're trying to protect them. It's because you know how hard that shit I, is. I like, understand. you know, yeah. the whole thing. And so I think he has great respect. And even with the officials, he'll get on them, but he has great respect for what they do. And he has great respect for the game. And I think what I like the most when I hear him broadcast is he, he tries to convey that respect for everybody in the game, but he doesn't take himself too seriously. Like, you know, you can joke with him, you can make fun of him, you know, and he loves it as much as anybody. So I'm just really proud of the the type of person he is. I feel very, very proud. Like people will say stuff to me sometimes on Twitter, but sometimes like they'll yell stuff, Jeff's the better Van Gundy. And I'm like, yeah, totally agree. (laughs) I don't know how they think they're going to upset me with that. Like, Don't you want, you want that for everybody in your family. You want them to be better than you. Like, that's a great thing you're saying to me right now. Like, yeah, that's my brother, man. I mean, I'm, I'm proud as hell of him. Did him going into TV have something to do with you going over there afterwards and getting in, now you with TNT doing your thing? Well, I think two things again, right? I mean, 
just like with the coaching, I'm sure somebody at TNT or all of them said like, because he had worked at TNT not for long, but before he went back to Houston, between right. New York and Houston, he worked for TNT. So not only did they think he was good doing the broadcast, but again, like he's just a good person to work with. Like he was a team player at mm -hmm. TNT and treated everybody with respect and the whole thing. And so I think that I benefited from people saying, you know, maybe he'll be like his brother. His brother was great. Let's give him a, a shot. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that I would have never gotten the opportunity in the NBA as a coach, even as an assistant. Pat Riley would have never hired me except he had experience with my brother. I don't think Pat looked at my resume and said, yo, this dude won a lot of games at Castleton State in Vermont. I don't think he said that, you know. I think it was because of my brother. And then I'm sure with the broadcasting, it was the same thing. So, I, yeah, I have no I have no hesitation in saying that without him, I would have never had this opportunity that I've had in the NBA. So clearly you was paying some attention to some of the locker room, the airplane, and the bus, the slang that we was using. Because now, all over the internet and the social media world, we got Stan busting out the hip-hop, the culture words. They got Stan, they got the Stan spitting little segment on ESPN. <laughs> like, tell me. Well, that all came from Kevin Durant. I don't know if you <laughs> follow. So I, I tweeted out a thing about which I still stand by. Like, I tweeted out this thing that, hey, in the 90s, when I came in the league, guys, practice more, right. more back-to-backs, travel was harder, and they played more often. And we practiced, all you guys know. Right. Like, practice was practice. So all I said is, something's not working right. here. And so Kevin Durant tweeted out a reply, Stan spitting. I had no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> None, zero. So... I didn't think he was like, you know, busting on me, but I thought he was disagreeing with me. Right. So I came back and said, look, I said, like, injuries like yours, a guy rolls on your leg, we can't do anything about it. Like, I'm explaining myself. And then he just came back with, LOL, I was agreeing with you. So now everybody jumped on that stuff, right? And then everybody's like, yo, Stan, come on, man. You, you coached in the NBA, you got to get the Urban Dictionary and shit. But like, no, like I would hear a lot of stuff when I was going, I never knew any of that. Honestly, you know, I knew more about the slang and stuff when my kids were still at home, you know, because right. they're young, yeah. Yeah. they're yeah. around it. But now my kids have all been out of the house. <laughs> so, and I'm not coaching, I'm not around. So I'm not up on, Ain't I'm on not up on anything, <laughs> right? Nothing. So they got me and it was funny, but like, that's just, and I mean, you know me, Q, you were around me. Like, <laughs> I'm just who I am. Like, I'm not trying to act like I'm hip hop right. or that I came from where you came from yeah. or anything else. That's just not yeah. who I am. Like, that's not the lingo that I'm going to use. But we've had a lot of fun with it, yeah, yeah, with yeah. it on the air. And Durant got me on that one, you know. He did. I had no idea. So now TNT thinks it's funny and they're using <laughs> that on me. Eras. Who has the best era? The 90s, 2000s, early 2000s, or this era? All of them. They're all different. And they're all of them. And, and I think that's the thing, right? I grew up on Oscar Robertson and... Kareem, Kareem, like I grew up in California. And so this is before ESPN. 
You didn't get games on TV. Growing up out there, it was the Pac-8 at the time. Saturday afternoon, Pac-8 game of the week. It was always UCLA, whoever they were playing. And a lot of times it was 10 a.m. in the morning for us in California because it would be a 1 o'clock game on the East yeah. Coast, NBA game of the week. Those are the two games you got every week. Mm -hmm. So those are the guys I grew up on. And you know what? A lot of it was more reading about it because you didn't see that many games. Yeah. You know? Black and white. They don't so know that era was white. great. And I always think just respect the great ones for what they did in their era. And it's hard to compare of course, just the natural, I don't even care if we're talking about basketball, natural human evolution. Mm -hmm. Guys get bigger, stronger, faster, and yeah. they keep improving. So <laughs> the best players are the guys playing now. Like, yeah. I don't even want to argue that with the guys of the 80s and 90s. Right. Players have gotten better. Like, I don't know if you guys look out there, right? I mean, players are better now than, no, yeah, than you are. guys were. They like, it's just, yeah. but here's the thing I think the players now have to realize. Yes, you're better now. You know why? Because everybody builds on the generation ahead of them. Yeah. And without these guys that played before you, you wouldn't be here. You didn't invent the damn game. Right. You just improved right. on it. Yeah. And the guys I like, and I will say this, I think Shaq has been one of the best of this. Like, if you remember, right, who paid for George Mikan's funeral? Shaq did. Mm. You know, Shaq did. Like, that's respecting a guy. Right. Shaq never saw him play, but that's respect Back for people. Like, yeah. LeBron's done a good job of that. You know, but you got to respect everybody. Like, to me, man, my hero growing up, I still throw him in the conversation for the best ever, Oscar Robertson. Like, look, man, we talk about triple doubles. The dude had been in the league Five years, five years in the league. At the end of five years, he was averaging 30, 10, and 10. He was averaging a 30-point triple-double. Like, yeah. we ain't going to give my man no respect. Like, yeah. come on. Yeah. Like, Oscar Robertson. And here's the thing. Like, you think of the big guards now. You think of Luka or before him, like Magic. That shit started with Oscar, Oscar. man. Yeah. That started with Oscar. He was a 6'5", power-forward playing point guard like yeah. give them respect mm -hmm. like and it just builds on every generation so to me yeah like if you're gonna look at a guy like bill russell or in today's game if yeah if he came with the same game yeah he i don't know he'd be a third string center somewhere maybe mm -hmm. but that's not the point the point is he changed the game in his era he changed the game and so I like the conversations. I think they're interesting, best uh -huh. player of all time. But let's just make sure that we're giving guys of every era the, the respect. respect they deserve. Because also, a lot of things were harder. I mean, they're traveling commercial, uh -huh. playing three days in a row. Yeah. You know, sleeping in the Ritz. Yes, and not making <laughs> the kind of money that they were making now. Those guys all had off season jobs and stuff, yeah. you know? Yeah, so. That's my only thing is I don't like it. I, it's fine to make have the conversation. I don't like it when it comes to, yeah, those guys couldn't play. Like, I love J.J. He's one of my favorite ever. But he, when he called those guys all plumbers yeah. that used to play, like, no, no, uh-uh, <laughs> uh-uh, no. Yeah, yeah. If you're the best in your generation, you were the best you're based the best. on those training techniques, yeah. the way people coach then, yeah. all of that. Like, come on, man, let's – those guys were – were great. And let's also remember, there were a lot fewer teams in. There yeah. were, you know, 16 teams, 12 teams. If you go back far enough, eight teams. Well, 
Imagine if there were 12 teams now. Not even half the guys that are in the league now would be in the league. Imagine what the level of play would be. You know, that's the thing people don't realize. Like Russell and Chamberlain, it seemed like every other night they were playing each other because there weren't 30 teams. They didn't get to go against the 30th best starting center in the league. Mm -hmm. Those guys weren't out there. So it sort of goes both ways. If you had to pick five players to make you a starting five of all the players that you ever coached in the NBA, who would be your five players? Oh, I mean, I was lucky. I got to coach a lot of good dudes. Ooh, that's a tough Well, Wade, for sure. Wade okay, two. Wade's for sure. Yeah, the two or the point. We'll see. Let me see who my <laughs> other five are going to be. I'd say Wade for sure. And I'd take Dwight. Now, that's a hard one over Shaq, and I don't think Dwight was better than Shaq, but I coached Shaq in the last year that he averaged 20 and 10, okay? Mm -hmm. I coached Dwight right in his prime. So I want to be clear on that. I'm not – I don't want Shaq jumping all over me saying that, (laughs) oh, come on, you think – no, listen, Shaq, to me, is one of the best players this league has ever had. And no one, not Jordan, not Kobe, no one made you – change your entire defense more than <laughs> yeah. Shaq. Yeah. Like, you know, you'd go to play that. Whatever your basic defense is, shit's yeah. out the window. Yeah. You ain't doing that against Shaq, okay? Yeah. Like, it's not going to work. So, and a very underrated passer and all of that. So I just want to be clear on the Knuckleheads podcast, I am not trying to put Dwight <laughs> up ahead of Shaq. But when I, ha- I had Dwight for longer and – when he was younger and in his prime. So I'll take Dwight and Wade. And then from there, wow, it gets pretty tough. Look, I only coached Zion for a year, but that dude's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Put, he'll be a four. Yeah, four. I got to I gotta put Zion in there. The, four. the tough one for me would be um, between Richard and Hito. Mm, that would be a right. really tough one for me, right? You know, it, it would. Yeah, I'd have trouble there. So I might have to have a six-man team. And then at the point, okay, so I could go one of two ways here. So I could put Jameer as my point because Jameer was all-star level. I mean, the year he got hurt and we brought Skip in, went to the finals, Jameer was – I mean, we beat the Lakers twice that year in the regular season, and it was because they couldn't keep Jameer out of the paint. They could not. He was crushing them. So I could either put Jameer at the point with Dwayne at the two and either Hito or Richard at the three, right? Or I play Hito at the two, Richard at the three, and D-Wade Wade at the one. at the point. So yeah. I don't know which way I'd go. But or you could put you could put Dwight at the four and put seconds, huh? We could. I, I mean, <laughs> now we'd have a hard time spacing the floor with that lineup. <laughs> and Zion. Hey. That's why hey, I want to add you, because as far as Zion, have you ever seen a player, a package come like that? Like, if he can somehow stay healthy, like, how good can he be? Listen, I mean, here's the thing with Zion, right? Like, you know he's going to the hole every time. Right. You know it. <laughs> like, he's not going to shoot a jumper. He doesn't have a floater. He ain't going to eight. He's going to the rim every time he gets a ball. Everybody on both teams knows he's going to the rim every time. He's getting there anyway. Like, he's getting there anyway. And he's underrated. Like, people say, well, his skill level. I say, well, wait a minute. Yeah, he doesn't shoot a lot of jump shots or anything. But let's not forget the other skills. Great handle. Great handle. Really good passer. Sees the floor. 
So I think don't put the skills down to one thing. And I think he's really, really unselfish. He still struggles at the defensive end. I think Willie Green's done a tremendous job with not only him, their whole team, Mm -hmm. and he's gotten better there, but he's still a little bit of a defensive liability. But like you said earlier, if I got big fella back there, we'll get by with that. We'll be okay. (laughs) We'll be okay. So, yeah, no, Zion is – I just hope he can stay healthy for for him, for New Orleans, and for the fans, man, because that guy is a – you know, you're getting a highlight show every single night with him. And he works at it. You know, he works at it. It's almost like when you look at him, and this is what I worry about with him going forward. Like, it's almost like, remember when D. Rose came into the league? Like, sometimes I wonder with guys like that, if they're almost not too explosive for their own body's good. Like, you know, like you're exploding like that that many times and coming down, like, it's almost too much for... That's what I worry about. Like, can you be that explosive and stay healthy? Stay healthy. Like, I remember D. Rose got hurt against us twice here in Orlando, you know, going up and trying to basically dunk on Dwight. Hell, and he'd get knocked to the floor. Like, well, shit, if he wasn't that explosive, he would have shot a floater, (laughs) you know, and probably been healthy. So it's almost what makes those guys so exciting also makes them really, really vulnerable to injury. You got to make this coach a head coach, one assistant. You got to get rid of one of them. Yeah, start your start sub. That's your version uh, of yeah. start sub or bench. Okay. So uh, Greg Popovich. Okay. Larry Brown and Don Nelson. All right. Well, that wouldn't have even been my group, but I'll take, uh, I'll start Pop. I'll bring Larry Brown off the bench and bench Don Nelson. They're all great. It's hard for me. I would just say this. I mean, Pop did it at a high level in the NBA for longer, mm-hmm. and that that means a lot to me. And I think Don Nelson was one of the most creative coaches ever. Like, my brother worked for him in New York, and he said that guy's mind was incredible. Like, you yeah. know, just thinking off the top of his head. And, you know, we remember, to me, his greatest coaching job – was that team in Golden State Mm -hmm. when they beat the Mavericks. That was just incredible. I mean, he's just a really, really smart, innovative guy. But I think Larry Brown was, like, he did it at so many places and Mm -hmm. at so many levels and was a great, great teacher of the game that I would put him in there. I'd actually, and again, I'm biased, but... I think I'd put Spo at the top of the list. Hey, let's post her. You know why? Here's my thing with Spo, and I know I'm biased, all right? And so I also know him better and mm-hmm. have seen him up close. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing. What I think people forget about Spo is pre-LeBron, that team was making the playoffs and winning playoff series. I was there right? for one of those years. And, you know, Jermaine O'Neal and, yeah, yeah. and that group, they were winning. And then post-LeBron. They stay competitive. Now, they haven't always been in the playoffs, but Spo is, like, steady. I have not seen one of Eric's teams where you've thought even a little bit like, wow, that team's got more in them than that. I remember the one year they were struggling, right? They were 11-30 and at the halfway point and then went 30-11 and (laughs) the second half of the year with Dion Waiters. And, you know, I mean, you're just like, what's going on? I mean – because he just keeps 
looking, no matter if they're really good or not good, whatever, Spo's able to keep his focus on just how are we going to get better every single day. And I had two guys in my coaching career, not to put anyone else down, there were two guys who within a month of working with them where I just said, oh, this dude's got it. One was Sean Miller in college, and then one was Spo. Spo was our video guy in right. Miami. And he would go up and work guys out. Nobody, I mean, Eric Spolstra, like, like, he's not an ex-NBA player. He's just a video guy. After one workout, guys would listen to anything he said. It was the same with Sean Miller in college. Total respect because just what Pat Riley had said, when they know you can help them, you'll have their respect. And he would go up there and be able to teach. And plus he had brought great energy to it. And you just knew. And he was so intelligent. And it wouldn't have been hard for me to predict this kind of career. Now, you never know if the guy's going to, get the players that allow him to win a championship. You know, you never know because there's been some great coaches Mm -hmm. who've never legitimately had that opportunity to win a championship. And so they're, I think, really underrated as coaches. But that part you couldn't tell, but you knew right off he was going to be great. I think Keith Askins, you know, who was on that staff with us, I think those guys would all say the same thing. Like, yeah. I, I'll put him up against Me too. anybody who's ever been in this league. Yeah. We usually do a biggest purchase question, but Coach ain't got nothing for that. That would be my house, man. <laughs> that, that's, that's why I, that, that I don't count. I bought a boat, though. I bought a boat in the pandemic. He <laughs> <laughs> couldn't do nothing else. I bought a boat. Okay. <laughs> I bought a boat. I mean, nothing fancy. I bought a pontoon boat, but I bought it, and it was new. I still got it. We still go out there. All right, that's a wrap, man. We just got a chance to chop it up. One of my favorite coaches all time, man. We appreciate you pulling up, Coach. Absolutely. An honor to be here. All right, want to thank y'all for your continued support of the Knuckleheads podcast. Be sure to give us two taps by writing a review and rating five stars wherever you get your podcast. And make sure to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss an episode. You can also watch all the episodes on the Players Tribune YouTube page. Follow us on social media at Knuckleheads Podcast. And join our Knuckleheads Facebook group for exclusive content. Thanks again to all of our guests and fans. This wouldn't be possible without y'all. The Players Tribune.com.